Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show. It's Thursday, January 28th. How's your mask fitting? Is it falling below your nose? Are your glasses fogging up? There's actually a very simple way to find out if your mask fits appropriately. We'll talk about that in the program. Also going to talk about a major scientific discovery when it comes to a COVID drug. But first, I hoped that Trudeau would have got his act in gear when it came to our lives directly affected by COVID-19. He assures us that everyone who wants a vaccine will get one by the end of September. And according to a report released Wednesday, yesterday, by the Economist Intelligence Unit, I've never truthfully heard of them before, they warned it will take longer to immunize the world against the novel coronavirus than expected. And they've got some eye-opening stats here on when they think uh, we Canadians will be receiving, the mass populace here in Canada will be receiving that vaccine that Trudeau assures us. Anybody who wants one will get one by the end of September. Uh, by the way, my hand's up. Anybody else got their hands up right now for the end of September? I can do that. Ian Lee joins us from the Sprott School of Business. Ian, welcome to the program. Uh, good morning, Kelly. Thank you. Be- before I get into this, I have to ask you a few questions just to uh, provide some perspective here for the rest of us. Who makes up the Economic Intelligence Unit and how do they compile timelines when there's so many conflicting messages that are floating around right now with regard to vaccines and uh, and the production of them? The EIU is owned by The Economist magazine, which is the oldest la- uh, magazine in the English speaking world. It's 250 years old or something. The EIU is a, a commercial proprietary database. I cannot afford to subscribe to it. It's extremely expensive. Who subscribes to it? Embassies, government departments, large corporations, university libraries. My university subscribes to EIU because it's used by professors in their classes. They produce absolutely world-class research. They're like Bloomberg. So everybody knows Bloomberg. And I don't mean Bloomberg, the newspaper. I'm talking about Bloomberg, the terminals and the database, where they have awesome amounts of statistics and data in there. EIU is a competitor of Bloomberg in essence. And although many organizations have both, we have Bloomberg terminals at Carleton and we have a subscription that costs thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars a year. EIU have an army, that's my phrase, an army of people employed in mainly in Europe, European capitals and the US uh, because that's their market. And these are people that are journalists, some are mathematicians, some are economists, statisticians. And they are deeply, deeply plugged into the European capitals and to the American capital and state governments and so forth. Um, They're nobody challenges. I mean, the EIU, I I tell my students, along with Bloomberg, is the gold standard. Okay. It's completely nonpartisan. It's owned out of England by The Economist, as I just said, out of UK. Mm -hmm. Um, And the quality of its research is just simply unparalleled. Okay. Because they have thousands of employees. All right, I want to get into the report because I think this is what people are going to now um, lose their minds over. According to their report, the majority of Canadians might have to wait six months longer than Americans and Europeans for their COVID-19 vaccine. What that means is with the retooling of the Pfizer and the EU getting all protectionist on us, uh, they are predicting that Canadians could be waiting another six months beyond what Trudeau has said, we, you know, as the end of September as our timeline, uh, we're looking at, uh, what are they saying, uh, summer next year to yeah, get I our, say, our vaccines? I would say, I read the report very carefully. It obviously got my attention. I do read, and not just this report, I read reports regularly from the EIU for my students and my classes. 
I read this report with great interest. Um, and they're suggesting it's upwards of a year behind what Mr. Trudeau is promising. They divided and classified the world into three camps or three groups. And it's based on access to the, uh, uh, to the vaccine and when they'll be mass fully or mostly fully vaccinated. They said in the first category, the United States and the European Union countries will be mass vaccinated by the end of 2021. And Mr. Trudeau is saying we're in Canada going to be vaccinated by August of 2021. The EIU said the second category includes Canada, mm -hmm. Brazil, Russia, Australia, and they're going to be mass vaccinated is the estimate, the best estimate of people in the pharmaceutical industry, as well as people in government. They will be mass vaccinated by the middle of 2022, which is almost a year after what Mr. Trudeau has been telling us repeatedly. And then the third category is the rest of the world, which is the developing world, and they will not be vaccinated until 2023, and some countries will never be vaccinated because they don't have, they're very, very poor, and they don't have the money, and so on. So there's three groups or classes, three categories, uh, based on when they will be immunized. And U.S. and EU are at the top of the list, and they will get there first. And there's a logic to that. All the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world are headquartered in either the U.S. or Germany, France, Switzerland, which is European Union. And I mean, Switzerland's not in the EU, but let's not get too technical here. <laughs> um, and so my point being that that there, because the EU obviously regulates these pharmaceutical companies in Europe, and the U.S. does, the two governments, the European Union in Brussels, and of course the U.S. is obviously put pressure on these pharmaceutical companies, saying you look after us first. And uh, so we're second in line, if you want to put it that way. And that means we will not be mass inoculated, mass inoculated. There's some already inoculated. The government will say, what are you talking about? There's somebody getting inoculated. We're talking about everybody or almost everybody. That's not now going to take place according to the best experts, the best judgment of the experts until middle to 2022. That means Yet we're going to be another winter lockdown or at least stay hanging out in our houses on top of this winter, next winter we'll be in our house again. Okay, so Trudeau, he likes to brag about how Canada is leading the way on advanced purchases of vaccines. He says, you know, we have purchased enough vaccines that we could, well, he hasn't said this, but people have said this, that, you know, 6.4 billion doses have been pre-ordered, that we could vaccinate the entire population five times over, more than any other country surveyed. Um, and the EIU report confirms this. Yes, we have purchased uh, the most vaccines. However, it's about the delivery. It doesn't matter how much we purchased. If we're not going to be getting delivered uh, these That's vaccines, right. then they're not going into anybody's arms. So Trudeau obviously has to wear this. Do you, you know, you mentioned off the top when I asked you about who the uh, EIU were, that it's very expensive to subscribe to their uh, publication and only governments usually do and universities and people like that. Corporate, are you, are you saying that, that Trudeau probably has access to the EIU report? And if so, doesn't he have a responsibility in his government of transparency that he likes to brag about to share this? Um, I have absolutely zero doubt and I don't have any inside information, although I've lived in Ottawa all my life. And I have a lot of friends and who work throughout the government of Canada, including my late father, who was there for 40 years. My partner was there for 35 years. I know people that work in government libraries and the government libraries subscribe to the EIU, just like Carleton University Library does. 
uh, like other university libraries do, like big corporations do. They also subscribe to Bloomberg. They subscribe to other many, many different subscriptions. And um, I, I know finance. I'm sure I shouldn't say I know. I'm very certain that Finance Canada subscribes uh, to the EIU. Um, remember, the EIU have an army of, of journalists and researchers and statisticians and so forth on the ground throughout Europe, in Canada and the States. And they're talking to senior decision makers in Brussels, in Paris, and, you know, in Berlin and so forth. They're talking to the same people that our embassies abroad are talking to because we have highly skilled people in the Canadian embassies abroad. And that's their job is to ferret out information. And they're writing cables back every day to Ottawa, to Global Affairs Canada, uh, who then brief the Minister of Global Affairs, who briefs the Prime Minister. So I am absolutely certain that the prime minister is in possession of this information. I'm sure he's been briefed on this because we have very, very good public servants, highly trained, highly skilled, highly educated, and they're an act, they have access. They don't, I want to assure you, me, a, a mere little professor, if I can access this information, a deputy minister making a third of a million dollars in the government of Canada can make this, get this information quicker than I can because they have, they're closer to the student makers in They've got this data. They may have had this data two months ago. Okay, let me. So they've they they made may have had this data two months ago. What does the data say about people that are uh, in high risk situations, um, according to the EIU? Are we going to make sure that everybody in long term care gets their vaccines? Will we be able to do that by the end of the year here in Canada? I I don't know it because it depends on how many vaccines show up. It's right. purely a function of supply of delivery, as you put it. The, uh, just, I want to put something out there because mm -hmm. people may not still understand what's going on. They may see malfeasance or something. The EIU article did a beautiful analysis saying, look, there's a fundamental problem in the world today. There's a huge imbalance between demand and supply of the vaccines. There's way, way, way more demand around the world than there is supply of the vaccines. Okay. So this isn't somebody just being nasty saying, I don't like this company or this, this country or that prime minister. There is a huge shortage of supply. So the Americans and the Europeans are saying, well, these companies are in our country, so we're going to make sure we get looked after first, which is understandable. We would do the same thing if we had a pharmaceutical company in Canada. Okay, so there's a shortage of supply. That's what's causing the problem. That's why there's this staged rollout. You know, U.S. and EU get vaccinated first. Canada, Russia, Brazil, Australia get vaccinated second and the rest of the world third. It's because of this shortage. Right. What the, this means, Kelly, is is that if you don't have vaccines to stick in arms, there's nothing you can do. Right. So are these? The, is, but let me just ask you this: Are these shadows of things to come, or like can they be changed? Like, is there a way that well, with this retooling in Belgium, if uh, Pfizer yeah. finds a way to pump out more uh, vaccines, right. and I right. know the French uh, French uh, competitors starting to make Pfizer vaccines for them to help out here and get more needles in arms. Could we change the dates here sure. on delivery? Look, I'm sure that Mr. Trudeau, if he's challenged by any journalist, will say, look, it's just a forecast. Yes, it right. is. Every government, every decision maker makes forecasts every day of the week. Presidents of universities do, because you, when you're dealing with the future, you have to make assumptions about the future. What are interest rates going to be? What's the Canadian? Blah, blah, blah. Okay. So he could say, well, that's just a forecast. Yes, but it's also a very, very reliable forecast based on the very best information available today. Now, now to your question, could the forecast be changed? Not that it is, is it wrong, that's a, that's a silly question. 
Can the circumstances underlying that forecast change in the future? Yes. Maybe Pfizer will build two more plants at several billion dollars a plant. It, but it takes time right. to build plants. It takes time to hire more people to ramp up. You just don't snap your fingers and tomorrow morning, poof, there's a full-fledged pharmaceutical plant. It takes, I don't know how long it takes. But well, I'm sure I'll tell you, based on what I know about Montreal, and we started to invest in that plant in Montreal, we're not going to be ready to do anything till 2024. So let's say it takes at the very least three years to get everything up and running. Whether it's three, I mean, I cannot imagine that they can have a new plant, brand new, Greenfield, didn't exist before, up and running in six months. I just can't, I, I just, that's never, I've never heard of it. That applies equally to an automotive plant to build cars, a brand new plant from Greenfield, meaning it doesn't exist in an open Greenfield. That applies to chip fab plants of Intel. Takes yeah. them two, three, four years to get a new fab plant up and running. These are well, very complex pieces of technology. Not to mention, we're we're dealing with uh, supply chain issues, right? For raw materials, right. it's so we were. Uh, there are several hurdles in the way. Do you think Trudeau has to start uh, coming out with some bad news here? Start actually revealing that maybe we're going to have to wait a little longer, get get real with people in order to regain some semblance of, of credibility, or is all credibility lost with regard to this prime minister? I, not, not yet. I mean, I'm okay. People may accuse me of being a naive academic, but I really do believe that transparency always trumps uh, being secret because sooner or later the dirt comes out. The bad news, when I say dirt, the bad news. You can't hide it in an open society like Canada, where we have gazillions of blog sites and journalists and media and professors and, and, and NGOs. You cannot, this is not China or Russia, where you can say, you know, you leaked that information and we, we, we put a bullet in your head. This is Canada. And in an open society, and that's the phrase used about it, bad information gets out, it leaks out. So you might as well get ahead of the curve and come to the microphone and say, look, people, I want to level with you. I want to speak truth to power. I want to tell you what's going on. I mean, he could even use the data from the Economics Intelligence Unit saying, look, there's a, an absolute shortage. What this means, people, is that you're going to have to continue to be really cautious and prudent and stay in your house a lot of the time. I, this is the real takeaway I took from the EIU report. Not Get only am I going to be staying in my house now, I'm going to be staying in my house throughout the summer, the fall, and next winter. Oh, man. Model airplane sets are starting to look really attractive. When are they going to make a comeback? Um, I want what to ask movies? you... <laughs> Before I let you go, uh, yesterday, the, uh, I think it was yesterday or the day before, all these days blur into each other, as everybody knows. Um, that's one thing I think we can all agree on with this this pandemic. Uh, Trudeau apparently found out that that deal with China and and us testing their um, vaccine yes. here in Canada fell apart two days after it. He announced it yes. was made. This is back in May. How big yes. of a problem is it that he did not fess up to it until he made the Pfizer and Moderna deals? He didn't basically say, oh, yeah, by the way, that thing was dead ages ago. I'm, I'm going to go slightly differently, Kelly. I think it was an enormous mistake to even uh, try and do the deal with the Chinese. And let me explain why. And I think it was naivete. It wasn't because he was being a bad person. He, Mr. Trudeau, it's because he's fundamentally naive. And he thought, I think, this is my unique interpretation. <laughs> I, I think he thought that he's got so much capital because going all the way back to his father, who had a very close relationship with the Chinese leadership, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, 
The son went there with his father to China on visits, and he's can me, and he's been very soft uh, spoken in his criticism of China ever since. I'm not talking the last five years, four years, three years, two years, one year. I think that he thought that he had enough influence capital mm. with the Chinese that he could do a deal for the vaccine and it they would honor it and then he could come back to yeah. Canada and be a hero and say look people I got the vaccine before the Americans and the Europeans so you're That's saying Justin Trudeau bought into his popularity I'm saying <laughs> he really bought into he, that eh well I wouldn't quite put it that way I mean I've argued for many years as you know Kelly or for a long time he has I mean this is not a secret what I'm saying he has grow, uh, come out of extraordinary privilege nobody else is born yeah. at the very top of the society no we know that and based on the the vacations he takes and such ordinary people have to make their way in this world and they struggle and they work and sometimes you get fired sometimes you get laid off you got to go to grocery stores when you're at the top of the top of the top of the top you don't have to face any of those problems and so you live an extraordinary in an extraordinary bubble that no one else can imagine that's why F. Scott Fitzgerald in that great movie and uh, book, the, the, the Great Gatsby, he said, the really rich are not like you and I. They are very different. And he grew up in that privileged environment and he just doesn't have the outlook on the world that you and I and millions of other people have because we've had to struggle and work and do all that stuff that we do as regular, ordinary human beings. It's not a crime. He didn't choose to be born at 24 Sussex. My point is, it's and then yeah, he but never he chose to he chose to run for prime minister. And you know, you could argue that that is just complete arrogance, thinking you can do a job like that and relate to the average person when you don't See, come from an average background. You. No, and it's I know not, you are, uh, but I got to wrap it. I'm so sorry, Ian. Okay. I, I know that. Like, here's where we need to do a Kelly and Ian podcast because we could go okay. on for hours and hours. But I got to wrap it because I got to get to traffic. Okay. But I, I appreciate this because I thought right away when I read this, we got to get Ian Lee on because he can tell us exactly what this report yeah. um, it's a good is report. all about. Well, Absolutely it, it's, solid. Rock solid gold. Yeah, I'm glad that you said it's a solid report after that because I don't know mm-hmm. if I'd call it a good report. Well, good want, meaning it's reliable. That's yeah. what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I know. I just don't want to wait that long for my vaccine. <laughs> do I? <laughs> Ian, always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for sparing us some time. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Kelly. Thank you. Have a great day. A team of researchers from the Montreal Heart Institute believe they've found a drug that can fight COVID-19 and are calling it a major scientific discovery. That's pretty promising news when we find out that our vaccine, according to the uh, EIU in their latest report is probably our vaccination strategy probably won't be done mass vaccinations until mid 2021 is what they're saying. The prime minister still says everybody who wants the, the vaccine in Canada will get it by September, but we'll wait and see what happens there. Dr. Jean-Claude Tardif joins the show right now to talk to us about this drug. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Well, I guess right away we should start with, um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, this major scientific discovery, which was a drug that is already in existence, what this drug originally has been used for? Yeah, the drug is called cochicine. It's a very old drug, actually, that, that was extracted from a plant 200 years ago. And up to now, it has been used to treat inflammatory diseases like gout. Uh, another uh, disease caused by a virus called pericarditis, and a couple of other diseases. And because of the role that we believe that uh, inflammation is playing in uh, leading patients to being hospitalized, we have tested this very specific anti-inflammatory agent to prevent complications of COVID-19. So what did your research show? 
We showed that, um, well, first we did a large study of 4,488 patients. Uh, we showed a reduction of 21% uh, in um, the composite endpoint of deaths and hospitalization in the overall population. In that global population, it did not quite reach the statistical significance level. But what is fascinating, in the 93% of patients who had a confirmation of the disease with the standard nasal test, um, we saw an even greater effect of cochicine. That is a 25% reduction in, in these events, especially the need for hospitalization which was reduced by more than 25%, which I think is quite uh, important. Uh, there were also trends in the right direction for, uh, for the need for mechanical ventilation, but the, the real important news is that we have a significant reduction uh, in hospitalization with this inexpensive, uh, safe old drug. So it's dealing with inflammation. Does it stave off what is called cytokine storms in That's COVID exactly patients? It. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. So that's the sophisticated word. The simpler word is inflammatory storm. But you're quite right. The technical word is cytokine storm. So what led you to believe that this could be used to fight COVID-19? Who had the aha moment when they thought, oh, well, we got to stop the inflammation? That's a big deal. That's where major problems are coming from when we talk about uh, COVID-19. Where did that start? Well, it started from a very simple uh, concept when, uh, when in March 2020 uh, that that uh, you know seems like an eternity ago. Um, the simple concept was uh, the virus that causes COVID is called SARS-CoV-2. It has a little brother, which is SARS-CoV-1, that caused the SARS epidemic 15 years ago, and that virus, which is closely related, is known to activate in cells. Uh, a complex that is called the inflammasome, which triggers the cytokine storm. And we had been working with this drug, cochicine for a long, long time and knew that uh, preferentially it was targeting the inflammasome. So for us, it, pretty, it was pretty simple uh, to predict that cochicine should work uh, in patients with COVID-19. Okay, so when would cochicine be prescribed to someone with COVID-19? So now um, uh, a lot of uh, agencies reviewing uh, medications, you know, whether, whether it's on Ontario, B.C., Quebec, all the provinces and different countries are reviewing the data uh, that we just got a few days ago. Uh, uh, in some countries, people can prescribe it right now because it's already, you know, in, in pharmacies to treat different diseases. Um, as far as Ontario and Quebec are concerned, I know that uh, uh, the relevant agencies are reviewing data as we speak and should make recommendations, hopefully, before the end of the week. Uh, and then uh, physicians will probably act on, on these recommendations. But we've heard of other uh, COVID drugs being used when y you deal with a serious situation, a, a severe case of COVID-19. Would colchicine be used in that same situation or would you prescribe it to someone who just was uh, possibly high risk and had been confirmed as having COVID-19? They just received a positive test. Would they start taking it right away? Because I understand it's, uh, it's orally administered. So that would be pretty easy for the patient to handle. Yeah, that's exactly it. So the drug you're referring to, the other drug is dexamethasone, which is a steroid. 
and was shown uh, to be helpful only in patients who are hospitalized and actually those who are uh, receiving oxygen therapy or are intubated. Uh, and it turns out that dexamethasone is also an anti-inflammatory drug. Uh, so as you correctly pointed out, cochicine as an orally uh, administered, uh, administered drug, inexpensive, widely available, would be targeting a different population, that is patients uh, early after the diagnosis to try to prevent the hospitalization from occurring in the first place. So basically, in my opinion, cochicine would be given to patients at risk uh, of complications right after their diagnosis with a PCR test uh, in the nose. And you start it as soon as possible to try to prevent this cytokine storm, as opposed to dexamethasone, the steroid, uh, which is given to patients once they have had the complication of hospitalization and often when they are in the intensive care unit. So prescribing this drug could not only help someone, uh, you know, stave off a severe reaction to COVID-19, but it could also help reduce the congestion that we're finding in hospitals. This is, this is where the drug is a big game changer. In our opinion, that's exactly the case. It, it goes beyond COVID-19 because, unfortunately, what we are experiencing as, as you know, healthcare workers is that, unfortunately, people with heart disease, people with cancer now are uh, having difficulty uh, being treated rapidly because, you know, uh, the ministries of health have to make tough decisions to try to have enough beds to take care of all these people with COVID-19. So you're absolutely right. Reducing the congestion uh, of the healthcare system by reducing hospitalization may have, you know, will be highly relevant. Colchicine, does it have any side effects? I think that's the only thing we need to know here because it sounds like a dream drug right now. Yes, so it does. Uh, It's a drug that, that is safe. A, B, uh, the, the predominant side effect is gastrointestinal in nature. It's mostly diarrhea in some patients, uh, and, but, but, you know, nothing that is severe, but th- that's the main uh, side effect that can occur. I know we had some trouble connecting, but uh, Dr. Tardif, I want to thank you for sparing some time. It's really uh, an interesting discovery and an important one, and I, I thank you for being so generous and, and working around our schedule and yours. Thank you very much. That was a pleasure. All right. Uh, There's a lot of concern about these new variants, whether it be the UK variant, the Brazilian variant, the South African variant of COVID-19, and the fact that they are proving to be more contagious. And we still don't know a lot about how they affect us. But uh, we do know that masks are um, one of the ways we can um, stop COVID-19 from spreading. Aaron Bromage is a a biology professor and immunologist at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth, and he joins the show to talk about masks. Aaron, I'm so happy you spared some time for us because I was reading uh, um, something about your approach to masks, and I thought, this is information that I had no idea about, yet I've been talking about masks for nine months. There are appropriate ways to figure out if you're wearing the mask properly and uh, if it if it fits properly. Before we get to that, and I, I'd love you to explain what they are, I want to ask you what your approach is when it comes to masks, because, you know, Dr. Fauci is saying, yeah, wear two masks now if you can. So for me with masks, and first of all, great uh, for having me on today. Thank you for having me on. Um, my approach to masks is finding a mask that fits your face well, that provides good filtration. 
And I will say at the beginning of the pandemic, I literally spent months and months trying to find one that was uh, a good shape for my face, because if it doesn't fit well, you're not getting the benefits of the, the mask filtration material. So I've ended up you know, working almost exclusively in type three surgical masks because they will provide a good fit for my face and I can feel the air that I'm breathing both in and out going through the material. And so I know I'm getting the full effect of how well that mask actually filters. So you really went through a process where you were trying masks on because I I don't think a lot of us have done that. First of all, it was hard to get a hold of masks at the beginning uh, because they were in short supply. But, you know, uh, I think a lot of us have no idea about what you mean with, uh, you know, your breath going through the mask. So can you explain how a mask should fit and what you should be looking for? Yeah, so when we're wearing masks, um, one of the most critical things is making sure that the mask does have a nose bridge on it. So a little piece of metal that helps it shape around your nose and sort of mold onto your cheeks. Um, when I, I see a lot of people wearing masks and homemade masks, you see that they're, they're sort of pulled tight because of their ears and it creates sort of like a tent structure across their nose and it creates a big gap between um, the mask and their cheek. And it's really easy to see it in people when their glasses are fogging up. Mm -hmm. um, air just coming up, it, they start looking like a train uh, with the air popping up and it's fogging up their glasses. You know that the material that they're using or the mask that they're using is not filtering the air the way that you want to provide protection. So what we're looking for is, you know, a good seal across the cheeks and in the nose, um, no gaps around your ears and certainly no gap underneath your chin. Um, if we can get that, um, we know that then whatever material you've got is giving you the full filtering effect. And for me, when I'm wearing a mask, you know, when I was doing this, uh, getting it working the right first time, is put the mask on, look in a mirror, and when you see the mask expand when you breathe out and then collapse as you breathe back in, you know you're getting a lot of tension um, in regards to the mask on your face and that most of your breath is actually going through the material. And that's important because then you know that it, you don't have any uh, area around the mask where COVID-19 could get in to you. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And so then once you've got a good feel, it's just a matter of making sure that the filtering, like the material you have is the right. And so you've everyone's heard like, you know, two layers is better than one, three layers is better than two. Um, and so, you know, you can work with different materials and homemade masks, but I you know, really prefer the ones that actually have a government approval rating so that you know their filtering efficiency. And that's the, the surgical masks that you see, which are the type one, type two, type three, or then getting into like the N95s or KN95s, those type of things, you know that then the material on your face is providing the level of filtration that you're after. So fit is important, and then the type of material comes after that. But as you have mentioned in this article I read uh, where you're quoted, it's not that double masking provides extra pr protection. If the mask fits well, then you're probably good to go. You don't need to double mask. So if we have a mask, and I'm thinking of a bunch of masks that I wear sometimes that might not fit me as well as I'd like them to, and I think what I'm going to do is probably revisit the nose uh, strip and make it a little longer so it goes um, more over my cheeks and that might do the trick. 
Um, you doubling over uh, a mask that doesn't fit could do the trick, in your opinion? Right. Yeah. And so there's a couple of approaches that you can take. Um, Take a mask that is not, that has great filtering, but not a perfect fit. And sometimes we have to do that because we can, it's only what we have available. And then you take a, you know, a simple cloth mask that really molds around your face and it will hold that first good filtering mask on your face nice and snugly so that most of your air goes through the material. You've got to be careful that you don't put too many layers on because we really don't want to have a lot of resistance when we're breathing. It's tiring, and you may actually short-circuit the mask. You may actually start forcing air off to the side. Really? Um, but what... Well, yeah, so it's like you cannot push too much air through and you may actually make it billow out and then Uh it creates a situation where the air goes, you know, around the side of it. So it's a balance between this. And again, that's why I like the the paper masks, the the ones, the surgical masks that have the ratings. They're very good with breathability. And then you can just put a basic cloth mask over the top of that and it will hold it nice and tight. But how available um, other, are those surgical masks? Like, aren't we at risk of taking supplies from folks in the front line that might need them? Yeah, so frontline workers should not be working in surgical masks. They should be in the N95s. Um, and we're finding now that the, 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 the rated surgical masks are really quite available um, on online retailers. I mean, we can order them here quite easily, and they're here in a few days. Um, and they cost about 20 cents each. And so they are fairly reasonable, you know, with the price. And, you know, when I'm not using them every day, I can use them over and over again. Um, but I think one of the, the other things that um, really helps with mask fit, if you don't want a double mask, is have you ever heard of the ear savers? Yeah. So Absolutely. Just, it's a way to, yeah, so use those. And then mm. that will actually pull this, the mask that you have tighter onto your face and create that seal that we're after because what we're really after is that seal yeah you can also use a carabiner i found if you don't have an ear saver a carabiner will do the trick and and pull that back as well yeah and i mean there's a ton of different creative solutions um i mean even a, a simple neck gaiter that is not great filtering by itself when you use a neck gaiter to hold, you know, a good filtering mask on, you get a great seal. Um, I've seen people use stockings, like a cut-up stocking that gives the seal over it. So there's mm. plenty of ways of doing it, but the, the real goal is to make sure that whatever mask you're wearing has a good seal on the skin around your face. You really don't want to be in a mask where you're talking and then the the mask starts to ride up onto your chin. You definitely don't want your glasses fogging up because you really know at that stage that you are stopping those big droplets. Like the big ones are stopped, but the little ones that go up and hover around the air are being let out of your mask. And certainly when you're breathing in, you're breathing in those little droplets from other people. So you're not getting the protection that you're after. Aaron, I want to thank you. This has been extremely informative and very important, this conversation. So thanks for sparing time for us today. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to be here. Well, that's it for today's podcast. Until next time, have a good one.
Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.